Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish between historic movements that capture the zeitgeist of the times and sheer dumb coincidence. A few years ago, every movie seemed to be set in the mid-50s, all buttoned-up madmen suits and seething undercurrents of change. Were there elusive parallels with today's difficult times, or did people simply want to dress up as Cary Grant and Grace Kelly? You're a biologist. Well, somehow I have graduated to housewife. Can you explain quantum mechanics to me? Seems baffling. Matter is solid. Stop my body passing through yours. Well, this week I was listening to a gripping podcast about Britain in the gloomy mid-70s. Oil shocks and miners' strikes, three-day weeks and weekly IRA bombings. And curiously, nearly all this week's movies are set in or around the year 1973. Spooky or what? You inherited a gift to see the future. Those girls need your protection. That man is trying to kill you. If you want to live, you have to trust me. The power of your mind has infinite potential. Marvel Comics' Madam Web starts that year in the Amazon jungle. The underground New Zealand theatre group Red Mole, the subject of Annie Goldson's documentary, was formed around that time. In fact, according to cultural historian Nick Bollinger, it probably couldn't have happened any other year. You'd had this three-year window where Labour had come to power, and it actually listened to a lot of the things that the counterculture had been asking for. What was the spirit of Ottawa? To represent New Zealand's views. And there's a biopic of probably the most important musical figure of 1973, reggae superstar Bob Marley. One Love is a brave attempt to capture his life and career in one movie. Bob, I know it's dangerous. the only one who can unite the people. You're ready, Bob. Actually, the one non-1973 movie, Todd Haynes' May-December, helps explain why dramatised real life is often unsatisfactory. Natalie Portman plays an actress about to make a film about a real-life scandal, a female teacher who was jailed for an affair with a schoolboy. But May-December is mostly about how movies often distort the truth for a good story. How do you choose your roles? I want to find a character that's difficult to, on the surface, understand. Were they born or were they made? The ending is brilliant. Shooting a scene in the film, the star demands more takes, claiming she's getting closer to the truth, when in fact she's getting further and further away from it. I already have an idea of what it must have felt like. What? Sneaking around with you. I shouldn't have said that.
Well, that's an occupational hazard in biopics. Will we see Bob Marley inspired by mundane events to suddenly write one of his best-known hits? Will friends regularly stop the action to remind him that he's Bob Marley, that he plays reggae music, and that he is, in fact, a reggae superstar? Well, let's wait and see. Don't let them fool it's a hit. Reggae is the people music. You know you're a superstar. Actually, New Zealand's 1973 was unique in some ways. It was the year of our first real comedian, John Clark, our first serious rock band, Split Ends, the dawn of our theatre, film and TV industries. It was the ideal time for Red Mole to hit the road. More on them in a minute, but first, why are comic book fans so up in arms about Marvel Comics' Madam Web? Come on, get your stuff. Let's go. <gasps> Madam Web is actually Marvel Light, Sony Marvel rather than Disney's official MC Universe. Sony is definitely the B-team responsible for dumb stuff like Morbius and Venom. Generally, comic book geeks don't think much of them. Let's try that again. Well, partly it's because they're not very good, a tradition Madame Webb certainly upholds, and partly it's because they don't stick rigidly to the source material, which often stretches back decades. But it's also because we may be getting sick of comic book movies and most of the good stories have been taken. Come on! Welcome back to the land of the living. I don't understand what's happening. I've been having visions. I knew he was going to die. There's no way Madame Webb, starring Fifty Shades of Grey's Dakota Johnson, remotely counts as a good story, or even at times a story at all. It opens on Cassie Webb's mum hunting for spiders in the Amazon in 1973. Her fellow explorer is a chap with the sinister name of Ezekiel Sims. I can also tell you she's about to have a baby. Perhaps Cassie can clarify matters. I've seen that man before. So who is he? Ezekiel Sims. He was in the Amazon with my mom when she was researching spiders right before she died. I should warn you, this is not the clunkiest piece of exposition in Madam Web. Let's meet Cassie, 30-odd years later, in New York City. Cassie drives an ambulance and then... Well, why am I telling you this? Cassie, what happens next? A week ago, I spent my life racing against time. I'm going to help you out today, OK? Trying to save people who were running out of it. Cassie! Until one moment... changed everything. She's rescued from the Hudson River by her old buddy Ben. Wait, Ben? Ben Parker? Wasn't he Spider-Man's uncle? Well, before we can tackle that feeling of deja vu, Cassie keeps having her own attacks. Is she reliving the present, or is she slipping a minute or so into the future, you may or may not be wondering? I can see the future. Oh, what the hell? She didn't see that coming? That's (laughs) not how it works. If Cassie Webb is confused, imagine how the rest of us are feeling, particularly when we keep cutting to an older Ezekiel Sims. Yes, he's back. He's having weird dreams of three teenage girls in Spider-Girl costumes all ganging up to kill him. Wait, what? 
Those girls don't understand the power in their hands. I have to stop what they become. If you want to live, you have to trust me. Cut back to Cassie, come on, catch up everyone, on a New York train and having her old premonitions. Premonitions involving fellow travellers, three teenage girls, all being attacked by someone looking suspiciously like an old Amazon explorer. I think I'm seeing the future. New York City is a whole new level of crazy these days. What do you want from me? OMG, stopping only to register that one of the three girls is played by flavour of the month Sydney Sweeney of White Lotus and Handmaid's Tale fame, Cassie goes back in time, rounds up the teen trio and herds them to safety. New York City is a whole new level of crazy these days. This is an emergency. Get off the train. That man's trying to kill you. What? Who are you? What is going on? Now, my problem, you may be surprised I'm only picking one, is that comic book origin films depend on a simple, easy-to-grasp situation. I can't even work out what Madame Webb's superpowers are. They bear very little connection to those of her obvious predecessor, Spider-Man. Wait, I recognize you. You live in my building. You're the paramedic. Yeah, you almost ran me over. You don't think this is weird, how we're all connected? Honestly, like, the least weird thing that's happened all day. The premise of Madame Webb seems to be babysitter with ill-defined powers. Ezekiel, who seems to spend a lot of time changing in and out of generic supervillain spandex, chases the girls who may one day turn into spidery superheroines themselves. And Cassie keeps finding new ways to protect them. What do you want me? I have no idea what those girls have come. Why don't you want I think he can see into the future. He's trying to change what happens. The original script, I believe, involved Cassie using her in and out of the future powers to tackle a villain who's trying to prevent the future Spider-Man, Peter Parker, from being born. Yes, it's a shameless steal of the old Terminator plot, but at least it is a plot. This one spends the whole time jumping all over the screen, dodging the slings and arrows of outraged comic book fans. If you want to live, you have to trust me. Get ready. Is the problem that a bad comic book movie is untypical of the genre? Well, I suspect the opposite may be the case these days. You're showing off. Maybe a little. If you weren't around in the heady days of the 1970s, the new documentary Red Mole, a romance, may seem like a report from another world. New Zealand was sharply divided between an older generation rendered conservative by three wars and the Great Depression and a younger one itching to break free. Growing up, there were very, very few people doing what my parents did. I have been visited by extraterrestrial creatures. They didn't know what they wanted. They did know they wanted to find it themselves. It was the age of rock and roll, performance poetry, sex and drugs and protest. What were people like poet and playwright Alan Brunton protesting about? What have you got? We're a group of evangelicals uh, who are touring around the nation with the wrath of God in us at the moment, proclaiming the second coming and the vague hope that the second coming might come. 
Annie Goldson's documentary of what came next is particularly fascinating because much of it was filmed at the time and much of it by Alan himself. Back then, that was all but unheard of. Alan was a product of 70s university life. He and his girlfriend Sally Rodwell were fringe before such a thing existed. And all they needed was one more ingredient. And I must have been 15. Sally was flamboyant and, and gorgeous and charismatic as she was. At one point, she kept saying, throw her higher, higher. Her name was Deborah Hunt, and she was a force of nature. Acrobat, fire-eater, puppeteer, you name it, she could do it. Based around those three, Red Mole was born, and they went on the road. We were sort of a little bit like rock and roll theatre. We are living what we wanted to do, and we were entertaining people, and we were gaining audiences. Astonishingly, well, astonishingly now maybe, they got big audiences. In those pre-internet years, there wasn't much competition maybe. And out in the regions, as band Blurter, comedian Fred Dagg and poet Sam Hunt had discovered, people would come out for anything that smacked of novelty. Alan, Sally, Deborah, we called them the Gang of Three. Even success didn't really generate a lot of money. Credit cards! How could you turn your back on a way to get more cash in your pocket than any other way you could come up with? It possibly added to the allure of Red Mole that some of the women often performed topless. It certainly helped that the troupe now included some crack musicians who later had their own career in the States as the Drongos. Was there ever a more 70s Kiwi band name than that? And seeing the skyline was amazing and was suddenly, as you are driving, suddenly you're in Manhattan. Fired up by their local success, Red Mole took off to New York City. No one could accuse them of thinking small. Once there, their career was a roller coaster ride of success and disaster. In the film narrated by Alan and Sally's daughter Ruby walking in her parents' footsteps. Can't imagine a radical theatre company from New Zealand coming over and making a theatre in Times Square now. There are some astonishingly good reviews from hard-nosed New York reviewers. Offering a useful overview to Red Molar Romance is commentator Nick Bollinger, who knows this territory better than most. He captures the mood of the time, the freedom of just enough money to live on, and the determination never to settle for the mundane. Red Mole even had a manifesto. I'm going to read it to you, Annie. To keep the romance alive, to escape programmed behaviour by remaining erratic to preserve the unclear and inexplicit idioms of everyday speech. Manifestos were not uncommon at the time, many even less coherent than Red Moles. Intent was the point, though, and in this case, they had too much going on to give up halfway. To abhor the domination of any person over any other and to expend energy. And, I mean, Red Mole expended energy like almost like no other theatre company I've ever known. Speak. I have something to say. 
It says a lot about the group and the typical New Zealand attitudes of the time, maybe, that every time Red Mole were in danger of real international success, they, usually Alan, would find some way to sabotage it. We kind of reached a point of exhaustion. <laughs> I thought I'd finished with all this. I was shocked. I was surprised. People getting pregnant is normal life, and we didn't live normal life. The one thing that endured the romance, if you like, was the love between Alan and Sally that ended only when death did them part. Red Mola romance is more a string of events than a strong narrative, maybe. When I arrived, I saw that mum had completely changed. I didn't recognise it. But one thing is undeniable. Red Mole paved the way for many successful New Zealand acts that followed. Flight of the Concords, Taika Waititi, Fat Freddy's Drop, Lord and the rest. If only someone had told them. I think a cultural panorama is constantly changing. And Red Mole was part of that change. Fictional biographies of well-known entertainers have their work cut out for them. Not only are these people famous because they're pretty much impossible to imitate convincingly, the expectation for a film about, say, reggae star Bob Marley is almost impossibly high. The reaction inevitably is, that's not Bob. Is all I ever have Redemption songs when you write that? All my life. This, despite the fact that the three leads are the reputable Kingsley Benadir as Bob, Lashana Lynch as Rita Marley, and James Norton as Island Records boss Chris Blackwell. Authenticity goes further in Bob Marley One Love. Musicians like Junior Marvin, Bunny Livingston and Family Man Barrett are actually played by their sons. Where you want to start? From the beginning. In addition, a lot of effort went into the distinctive Jamaican patois spoken by just about everyone in the film. It's to the credit of the performers, and perhaps of us too, that we managed to keep up despite the lack of subtitles. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Don't worry about that thing. Every little thing <laughs> gonna be alright. You like that one? Yeah. One love avoids another common mistake in this sort of biopic, trying to cram a whole life into one short movie. This film covers a relatively short period, opening when Bob is well established at home and just breaking out in Europe and America. Sometimes the messenger has to become the message. Jamaica is in the throes of fierce political unrest following independence. There are two main political parties, each supported by a violent gang. Murders in the streets of Jamaica are common, and the only thing the two sides agree on is their love of Bob Marley and the Whalers.
Bob is being pressured to put on a concert that will somehow bring about peace overnight. He reluctantly agrees to do it, but then shortly before the concert, armed gunmen break into the Mali compound. You see, reggae music come for unified people. Not everyone likes what you're saying. For your own safety, you need to stop. Miraculously, no one is killed, but it's clear Bob, his family and his band have to get out. They take off to London where they record a new album, Exodus. Exodus. That's the source of your strength. This is a key point in Marley's life. Exodus became not only his most famous album, but, according to Time magazine, the greatest album of the 20th century. It's easier to tell this story in a documentary. Once you start handing out the exposition in dramatic form, it inevitably clunks at times. Bob, they try to kill you and your wife. And now you're choosing to return to Jamaica to play a peace concert? Don't you fear for your life? No reflection on the writers or director Ronaldo Marcus Green, who made the Oscar-nominated King Richard. But Richard Williams was a tennis coach. He wasn't in our living room year after year singing some of the greatest songs in reggae. It's a hard barrier to get past, particularly reciting dialogue under the critical eye of Bob Marley's family. No guns can stop this message. I want the world to change. Bob Marley, One Love, was produced by widow Rita Marley and three of his children. Now, it was always unlikely that many warts would appear on the face of the movie, let alone that of star Kingsley Ben-Adir, whose last role was as one of the Kens in the squeaky clean Barbie. There's a war going on. You can't separate the music and the message. Cause every day we pay the price. And what is the message? Peace. Oh, life is worth much more than gold. Marley experts agree most of the facts in the film are pretty much true, and yet they find one love strangely lifeless, considering the subject matter. But is it so strange? And that time is no. With this cast and crew, it was never going to be a mere vanity project. Ben Idea is terrific, on stage and off, and of course the music is wonderful. But if you want a better idea of the true story, I suggest you seek out clips of the man himself. Who better to tell the story of Bob Marley than Bob Marley? Which brings this show to a close. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.